Welcome to the HCC Podcast. Our mission is to nurture love for God, love for self, and love for others as the highest goal of humanity. May the following message nurture that love in your life. And remember, you're always welcome at HCC. It's a perfect church for less than perfect people. Peace. Today's message is titled simply Psalm 24, Our God. We're going to review the passage together, observe the three essential attributes conveyed, and break them down a little further. So if you will, please check out Psalm 24. It should be in your sermon notes. You can do it the old-fashioned way. If you're looking for it in the Bible, if you're looking for the book of Psalms, just open up to the middle, and you're most likely going to hit Psalms, and you can navigate from there. But follow along as I read from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him. For He laid the earth's foundations on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God their Savior. Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors, and let the King of glory enter. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord invincible in battle. Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors, and let the King of glory enter. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of heaven's armies, he is the King of glory. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your people. I ask that as we go into your word, that Holy Spirit, you will teach us in all things. We welcome you to this place. I ask that you anoint my mouth as I proclaim your message to your people. Please anoint the ears of those who are about to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So the first attribute that I want to talk about is sovereignty. You may have heard the term God's sovereignty or the Lord is sovereign, but what does that actually mean? Well, in the simplest meaning of the word, it is God's ultimate overarching control of absolutely everything. It is his continually working of all things together to carry out his desires and plan. Even evil. God uses evil. He doesn't create evil or cause evil things to happen, but he uses the evil in the world to bring to pass his perfect plan. God is able to do this because Scripture teaches that he is, and here's some theological words for you, omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. Matthew 19.26 says, with God, all things are possible. He is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. 1 Chronicles 28.9 says the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire. Omnipresent, which means he is everywhere, all at the same time. Psalm 139.7, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? Now, if you can't comprehend all that, that's kind of the point. That is why God is God, and we are human. Bill Lubkeman, a local pastor that I like to listen to on the radio, he said it this way, if you can fully understand your God, you serve a very small God. And a false one, I might add to that. Job's statement sums up the sovereignty of God quite nicely for us. 
In Job 42.2, he proclaims, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, David starts the psalm, praise, psalm praising God's sovereignty by affirming his rule over everything and everyone as creator of everything and everyone. David's description in verse 2 reveals God is as, as intimately and personally involved in the creation process. 32 there. For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. We see this same kind of care and intimacy in the creation of human beings in Genesis 1, with God personally forming the man and woman and breathing the breath of life into them. God did not use evolution to bring about human beings or the rest of the planet as is the claims of those Christians who hold to what is called a theistic evolution creation theory. It's basically saying that God used evolution to bring about the creation of everything, including humans. But, according to the biblical account, he chose to lay, build, and form the physical elements of this world, including human beings, and he did it personally. Theistic evolution is not biblically supported. What's more, he also personally ensures that everything and everyone continues to function and doesn't just essentially explode or implode into nothingness. Colossians 1.17, he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Gravity, the, the, the holding of uh, the atom's nucleus together, um, the, the laws of physics, Everything that God created, the constants, He holds them into place. Right here, right now, He is actively holding the entire universe together. Now this flies in the face of a theory known as deism. You may have heard of it. Deism basically says, you know, yeah, God created everything, but He's not actively involved. He, he kind of set everything in motion uh, set up the laws of physics and took his hands off the wheel, so to speak. He, he doesn't interfere with his creation. Well, then how do we reconcile that with Colossians 1.17 that we just read? Oh, there are physical and metaphysical laws that God has put into place that the world is governed by, but it is God himself who ensures those laws are carried out and remain. So like theistic evolution, deism is not supported by the Bible. Now I'm going to ask you something. Let's say... Let's say an artist creates a masterpiece, a, a painting, a, a piece of music, a script. Who justifi justifiably has the authority over that piece? Is it the people working in the art museum? Is it the musicians performing? Do the actors in the play have exclusive rights to it? No. Who does? The creator. Parents recognize this innate truth. If you have said to your child, and you can finish this for me, if you have said to your child, who have ever heard it said to you as a child, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. See, it's been said. Well, what is that saying? Well, it's saying in not so many words that as your creator, humanly speaking, as your creator, as your parent, as you as my creation, I automatically hold the power and the exclusive rights over your function and destiny. I think we can all agree. A creator holds full authority over their creation. 
David recognized this reality in Psalm 24 by attributing to God the role of king. Verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, they all refer to God as king. I know we don't function in a society that is governed by a single monarch, but I think we all understand the implications of that word from the things we learned about kings in childhood stories, uh, books, movies, and history class, if you didn't sleep through it. Kings do what? They rule. They reign. They have authority, control, and power. They speak things and they come to pass. A king rules over lands, but more importantly, kings rule over people. God is the invincible king over everything we can see and everything we can't see. He oversees everything, orchestrates everything, and controls everything. Not in the sense that everything is essentially a marionette puppet and God pulls everybody's strings. No, that's not what we are saying, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But God is undoubtedly the king of the world in the fullest meaning of that phrase. Now, all you good Bible students out there will be quick to blow the whistle on me, throw the red challenge flag out on the field, and present to me passages that refer to Satan as the ruler of this world, John 12, 31, the prince of this world, that's John 14, 30, and 16, 11, and get this, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Do we have a contradiction here between David's claim of God's rule over the world in Psalm 24 and these other passages that ascribe rule over the world to Satan? No. No, we do not. And the Bible will never contradict itself. And this can be easily reconciled by thinking of it in one of two ways. First, the Greek word, uh, Greek term cosmos is translated as world in the Bible, in the English Bible. It's often used throughout to refer to a order of things, a, a system or how things operate, particularly in reference to anything and everything that deviates from God's original design. As Christians, we have a threefold assault always working against us. The flesh, the devil, and the what? The world. And we understand the meaning, right? We don't mean the grass, the trees, the animals, the planet we stand on is after us. No, the attack of the world refers to the system of beliefs and practices that oppose God. A system that perpetuates sin. Ephesians 2.2 In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and here's Satan, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Satan is the ruler, the leader, the authority over that system, yes. But this said system of the world operates under the authority of God's overarching rule over everything and everyone. Does that make sense? Second, and you can think of it this way, this is how I used to think of it, I always think of it because I'm a visual person. You think of it this way, and, and, and this is really kind of just simplified, but it works. Think of Satan's rule and control as leasing or renting a house, right? Let's say I, my, my wife and I, we're going to rent a house. So I rent a house. I have some authority over that house I'm renting while I'm living there, but it's restricted. If I want to do anything to that house, change the color of the paint, knock down this wall, install a pool, replace the door, I have to get the permission of who? The owner of the house. Very good. Also, how long am I able to 
hold my authority and to live in that house for? Well, it depends on how long my lease is good for, right? Who determines that? The owner of the house. The world is on lease, if you will, to Satan by the true owner, God. If Satan wants to do anything to the world, he must have God's permission. And one day, according to the book of Revelation, God, the owner, will say to Satan, your lease is up, you are being eternally evicted, and get out and go to the place I have prepared for you and your demons. That, of course, being the lake of fire. And I am really, really looking forward to eviction day. How about you? So either way you look at it, both hold the correct theological view here. Satan has authority and power to influence God's creation. However, it can only be exercised under the thumb of God. Satan can only do what God allows. And here's the amazing part. Because God has the ultimate control, power, and authority, he then takes what Satan does and works it together for good and to fulfill his own purpose. That is what our theme verse for this year, Romans 8.28, is all about. If you want a great behind-the-scenes look of God's authority and Satan's power in the world, read Job chapters 1 and 2. In fact, that's your, that's your homework for this week. Read, read Job's chapters 1 and 2. And I'm going to quiz you on it. Let me test you. On a more serious note, I can understand completely why the doctrine of God's sovereignty is often considered to be one of the hardest theological truths to accept. And it is one myself, from time to time, wrestle with. Especially when a 12-story high-rise condo full of people suddenly collapses, trapping them inside. A two-year-old boy is drowned by an attacking alligator at Disney World. Your baby is taken from you in the womb before you even get to meet them after praying and praying for God to bless you and your wife with a child. My wife and I experienced a miscarriage last year. You'd be gravely mistaken if you think this big, strong preacher man up here hasn't questioned God's authority over everything in moments of loss, pain, and what appears to be senseless tragedy. You're not alone, friend. No matter, the truth is that God did not stop being sovereign in those moments or any other horrific moment that comes to mind. Could God have stopped those things from happening? Could God have stopped that particular bad thing from happening to you? Yes, He could have. But in His sovereignty, He chose not to. I'm going to be real with you. That's hard. And you are not alone in struggling to reconcile it in your mind. That is why for years, the existence and reality of evil has been the most highly debated philosophical weapon used against Orthodox Christianity for centuries. We know the question, right? If God is so good and so powerful, why? Fill in the blank. We are told where evil comes from in the Bible and we can answer that to a certain extent. But to answer every single specific question about why God does and does not do something would require we ourselves to have the infinite, 
mind, and wisdom of God. And I don't have that today. I don't know about you. Romans 11, 33, 36, I think, puts it beautifully. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. Here it is. How impossible is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways? For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory, all glory to him forever. Amen. See, human beings, we don't like things we cannot understand or rationalize. When there is a murder we hear about, what's the biggest detail we want to know about the event? The why, exactly, the motive. It's fitting that David illustrates God's sovereignty in Psalm 24 as him being king. Subjects of a king are to submit to his rule. They are to trust his decrees and decisions. They are to rest in the fact that he has more information and knowledge than the lowly peasants working in the marketplace will be privy to. They can find hope that he is in fact crowned king because he possesses a wisdom that is far greater than any other in the land. The king's subjects can be encouraged that the king always makes decisions that are best for the kingdom even when the wisest of servants can't understand. How do we reconcile in our minds God's sovereignty as the all-powerful, all-good king over everything and the reason for every bad thing that happens? How do we reconcile these two? The answer? We don't. We can't, and we are not called to do that. Come on, guys, we are referred to people of faith for a reason. We, as subjects to the king, are called to humbly submit and place our faith in what we do know about the sovereign king. We get so caught up in the things we don't know about God and make that our focus, instead of fixing our eyes on the things we do know about God and placing our faith there. Like the promise of Romans 8.28 that he works all things together for good. Let God's sovereignty be a source of comfort to you today. What else do we know about God? Well, let's take a look at our next attribute that is conveniently forgotten and done away with very often in our current age. And I find this to be very tragic. Holiness. God is completely and 100% holy in character, thought, and deed. Everything he thinks, feels, and does is holy. This is a crucial fact that every Christian needs to have and to hold about God. So it might be a good idea to know what exactly the Bible means when it uses the word holy to describe something or someone. Now, depending on its context, Holy can mean purity, as in the absence of sin. It can mean set apart or separated, and as a result, drastically different than the rest. Holy can mean sacred, something that is not common. It's far above the rest. And holiness can point to divine justice being carried out. God is the standard of holiness. He is all of these definitions perfectly and fully. 
David points this out to us in our text, Psalm 24. Look at verse 3. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure. This imagery David uses of the Lord dwelling on a high and lofty mountain poetically conveys the fact that God is set apart from His creation. He's present with us, but His nature is set apart. Meaning, He's on a whole other plane. It's like He's up on a high, elevated mountain in a special, holy dwelling place. And and we are standing up at the bottom of the mountain, gazing up at Him in awe. That special, holy dwelling place is revealed to us in the Bible as a real place called heaven sometimes referred to as paradise in the Scriptures. It must be noted that God is a category in of Himself. He's not animal. He's not human. He's not an angelic being. He's not like the pagan deities in mythology. He is God. He is always existing, self-sustaining God. 1 Chronicles 17.20, this is also David. There is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you. Human beings are the crown of all creation, meaning out of every single thing God created, we are the most valued by Him. What makes us so special? Well, going back to Genesis 1, it teaches us that we were made in His image. Notice that does not mean we are little mini-gods, as some teach. It means we were made in His likeness. That we are like Him in ways such as we have the ability to reason. We are self-aware. We have a will and emotions. Humans were made in the image of God. And this is why we protect the sanctity of life. And a problem we are seeing in a lot of modern Christianity is we have flipped that on its head and instead made God into our image. We will do this by taking the Scriptures and and twisting them to fit this mental picture of God that suits our liking instead of letting those living and active Scriptures shape our view of God. Let us be very careful and extra watchful of this occurrence because it often happens very subtly and many have been led astray by the act of making God into our image. This is what would be known as practicing idolatry. That's number two of the Ten Commandments. And David condemns idolatry in verse 4. You see it there when he uses the phrase worshiping idols. To make God into our own extra-biblical image and then live a life of service to that image is to worship an idol. Be careful. God's nature is sacred. He is not common. And he is far above humans, angels, demons, and that worm of worms, Satan's. After all, that was Satan's ultimate demise, right? In Isaiah 14, he said, I will be like the Most High. Uh, no you won't. God is sacred. God is also absent of any trace or hint of what the Bible declares as sin. Sin is utterly antithetical to his very being. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone to do evil. As a result of God's incredible, holy nature, and this might come as a shock, even the single little sin that we commit 
is a major offense and crime personally against God. There is no misdemeanors in God's courtroom. Lied just once in your life? Major offense. Looked at porn just once in your life? Major offense. Complained just once in your life? Major offense. Disobeyed your parents just once in your life? Major offense. This all answers the question, why do people go to hell? Because God is holy. And by default, His perfect holiness demands that any offense against His holy character must be paid for. This payment is what is referred to in the Bible as the wrath of God. Just like a good and just judge would issue a payment penalty to a criminal and not just let them off the hook for raping and murdering 200 and women and children, God is that just judge. Human beings are the heinous criminals. Sin is the crime and the payment is hell. When people enter hell after death, it is because in their own pride, they have volitionally decided to make that payment themselves. In light of God's awesome and unfathomable holiness, David asks a very good question and a very relevant one. Verse 3, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He is essentially asking, who is worthy to stand before God and not receive punishment, but blessing from Him? The answer, verse 4, only those whose hands and hearts are pure. Well, what does that mean? It means we are to model God's holiness by being set apart from the rest of the world, living out sacred lives, and by not sinning in our minds or our actions. 1 Peter 14-16 through 16. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the Scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. In response to this truth, if you're thinking, well, crud, Mike, I'm out. I surely can't climb the mountain of God and stand in His holy place. From what you're telling me, I'm not even able to stick my finger out and touch the mountain, let alone scale it and hang out with God at the top of it. Well, if you're thinking like that, I have to say, you are on exactly the right track. In fact, you are standing on the very foundation of true biblical Christian orthodoxy. Are we to pursue lives that are free from sin in thought and deed? Absolutely. The Bible is very clear about this here in 1 Peter 1 and all throughout Scripture. So then, is it possible to do that to the extent that we ourselves may climb the mountain of God and stand in His holy place? Apostle Paul, over to you. Romans 3.23 For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Well, that answered the question, didn't it? The answer is no. But I would say my hands and my heart are pure for, for the most part. Ah. But are they perfectly pure? Because remember, God's holiness requires 
perfection. At the end of your life, can you stand before the impeccable, holy God and honestly say, my hands and my heart, my actions and thoughts have been perfectly pure from the womb to the grave. Suddenly, David's question of who is worthy takes on a whole other meaning, doesn't it? Almost like a prophetic meaning. Like the questions are implying that we need something to scale that mountain of God's perfection. Something that is able to go before God in His holy place because we can't. David's questions reveal our need for something or someone. A representative. Someone who can stand in the gap for us. Someone like a Savior. This leads us to our last beautiful characteristic of our God that we're going to talk about today. Relational. Our God is relational. The King of glory seeks a personal, loving, committed, and covenantal relationship with those He rules over. And get this, even His enemies. Right, the enemies of God, the atheists, those who kill people, the, the Hitlers and Bin Ladens of the world, those are the enemies of the king. Mm. Well, let's think about what we've talked about so far. We've established the fact that since God is holy, any act of sin we commit in our minds or our actions, remember David's words, hearts and hands that are pure, since God is utterly holy and by default, even one single act of sin is an egregious offense and attack against him personally, wouldn't it be logical to label those who commit such an offense and attack as enemies? Because that's what enemies do, right? They offend and they attack their opponent. Therefore, who then is the enemy of the king? Who is the enemy of God? Well, it is anyone who has ever sinned at least once in their existence. The enemy of God is the entire human race. The enemies of God, separated by evil thoughts and actions, says Paul in Colossians 1.21. In Ephesians 2.3, he explains this further to us. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Here it is. By our very nature... We were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. To put it in terms within the context of Psalm 24, God's enemies are anyone and everyone who has not climbed the mountain of the Lord and is currently standing in His holy place. But, Mike, we've already established that's impossible. I can't do that. You're right. You can't. But what if someone did it for you. The Bible also reveals God as merciful and gracious, as kind, and of course, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. What if God, what if the King of glory, in His love, recognized His enemies' complete impotence to do what needs to be done in order for them to be saved from their destined destruction? What if the Holy King left the glory splendor and comfort of his throne in the holy place 
descended down the mountain of the Lord, shed himself of his kingly garments, put on the clothes of a lowly peasant, and climbed the mountain for you. In fact, what if the king himself picked you up in his arms and carried you all the way to the top of the mountain of the Lord and placed you in his most holy place to dwell with God for all eternity? What if the king of glory did all that? I mean, that would be like no other world religion, right? My friend... That's exactly what the king did, and it is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15-22, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and He is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is His body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so He is the first in everything. For God, in all His fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through Him God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were His enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ, in his physical body. Here it is. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That is the true definition of the love of God. The love of God is not the king throwing down money cars, houses, comfort, and convenience from atop his mountain down to a broken and weak people who are already vulnerable to Satan's snares of unquenchable avarice, greed, lust, and selfishness. No. The love of God is about the King with no obligation to anyone or in need of anything, becoming a lowly, humble slave and dying a criminal's death on the cross so that he and his enemies may have a personal, loving, committed, and covenantal relationship now and forever in life and after death. That's love. But let us take note of some of the words David uses in Psalm 24. We're doing the home stretch here. Verse 6, such people may seek and worship in your presence. May seek. These words imply that what is involved begins with a seek. A choice. Everyone has the free will to choose if and how much they will foster a relationship with Jesus. The word worship 
Sing, move your body, live your life in response to His sovereignty, holiness, and great love. But worship is a volitional act. I love how Pastor Carey always reminds us in his messages that he sends out to the team, worship is not passive. Verse 7 and 9, open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors, and let the King of glory enter. Open up and let. That's a call to make the choice to let Jesus in. Revelation 3 sums up uh, what we are discussing here, and I think it parallels Psalm 24 well. This is Jesus talking to the church and talking to us today. Revelation 3, 20-21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow. <laughs> Relationships, they're all about choice. Love is not a feeling, it is a choice. My non-Christian friend, do you want to make the choice to allow Jesus, the King of glory, to be your Savior? Christians, what doors, what ancient gates that guard the secret areas of your life do you need to open up and allow Jesus' passage into? What about the door to your sexuality? The door to your money, your fun? What about the ancient gate to your bitterness, resentment, and pain? Hear the herald cry of Psalm 24 to open up those doors. Open up those ancient gates and let the King of glory, Jesus Christ, come in and heal your brokenness in those areas. He stands at the door and knocks. He's here to help. But only if you make the choice to let Him in and allow Him to rule as the King you claim Him to be with your mouth. David asks a very important question. Who? And it happens to be the most important question in the entire universe. Who? Who is Jesus Christ? How we answer that every single day of our existence has eternal ramifications. Who is the King of glory? He is the King who stepped down from His throne for you. He is the King who traded His royal robe for a garment of pain and suffering for you. He is the king who laid down his scepter to give his back to scourging for you. He is the king who traded a majestic crown for a crown of thorns for you. And he is the king who was raised from the dead once again, sitting on his throne, calling out in love right now for you. Psalm 24 was written over 1,000 years before Jesus was even born. Yet the whole thing is about Him. With the completion of God's plan of salvation for human beings, as told by the apostles in the New Testament, we know in full the answer to David's question. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of heaven's armies. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, to whom one day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. He is none other than God the Son, Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me?
we're going to enter into our spiritual response time now. I don't know how God has spoke to you through this message. I mentioned at the end there that every tongue and every knee will eventually confess that Jesus is King. However, the Bible's very clear that doesn't mean everybody is going to enjoy fellowship with Him for all eternity. It is only those who accept Him as Lord and Savior right now in this life. We're going to have people up front to pray with you, maybe. Um, maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> two, we have two people up front. One on this side, and one on that side there. If you have not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, don't waste any more time. You don't know how much time you have left. There's a story in the Bible where Jesus talks about a tower that fell on people. And when people were worshiping in the temple, one of the Roman leaders slaughtered them all. The basic premise of that, bringing that up, is like, well, why does God allow bad things to happen? Why Were they worse sinners? Jesus, he doesn't answer that question. He says, you too will perish if you do not trust in me. That's what he's saying to you right now. If you do not trust in me, you too will perish. That's a calling of love, not of condemnation, not of looking down on you, but a calling of love. These people on the side here, they're our prayer warriors. They can pray with you and lead you in that prayer to accept Christ today. Maybe you've been on the fringes. Maybe you feel like, you know what, I have Christian in name, but I don't know if I've actually kind of been practicing it. His mercies are new every day. The King is calling. They can pray for you about that. Any other need? Maybe you're having a hard time grappling with loving God right now because you realize in His sovereignty He allowed something pretty bad to happen. And I feel you. You need a lot of prayer, friend, in that moment. I know that's what me and my wife needed when we were going through that. These people are here to pray with you. Or, the wonderful thing is, you don't need a priest. You don't need an elder. You don't need me. You don't need Pastor Steve. You can go to God directly right where you are. Pray with him right now. That is what Jesus Christ allowed us to do by dying on the cross. We're going to sing this last song. Respond to the Lord in the way you feel he's leading you to respond. Come on, church. Let's sing. Let's respond.